We're going to be in 2 Timothy. We're going to be chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. I hope you got an outline. I think we had them available today. Nathan's usually very good about that. Um, but we're going to be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. I want you to know I'm actually beginning a series uh, through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah today. And I know those are books that are not typically covered from the pulpit. But um, they're usually books for revival or something like that. But I think we're going to be able to see them in a little different light throughout the next coming weeks or months, however long it takes. But I believe it's important to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17 so that you understand how relevant the Old Testament is for us today. And that really is my message for you today. I'm going to give you a very quick introduction of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But I'm also going to teach you today about why the Old Testament is so important, not just so important, why it is vital for us as Christians today. And so that's kind of the topic of my, my sermon today, if you will. But if you have the means and you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand one more time as we give reverence to reading this living and powerful Word of God. And again, we will be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. We'll go through verse 17. If you're there, say amen. amen. If you ain't there, say hold on. All right, here we go. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now let me ask you a question real quick. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, was there any New Testament? So when he tells him what he's fixing to tell him about the sacred writings, you understand he's talking about the Old Testament, correct? Alright, let's see what he says about them. He says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing the Old Testament is good for in your life. Verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You can be seated this morning. Let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning because, um, Lord, this is your word. Father, this has been breathed out by you. You inspired this, Father. And Lord, we come to you this morning because we know that unless your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and gives us hearts to receive this, it will just go in one ear and right out the other. And so, Father, we ask you, God, that you would give us a, a measure that we would be able to, to take in deeply and so much of what you would say to us this morning, Father. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to be able to, to hear everything that you mean for us to hear. Lord, I know you said, with whatever measure we use to listen, 
That's the measure that it will be measured out to us and then some. And so, Father, I pray, God, that you would give us a big measure this morning. Father, I pray and I give you thanks again for, for Meemaw and for the example that she lived. Father, Lord, I thank you for the way she loved your word. Father, I thank you for the way that she, uh, she loved to hear your word taught and explained and preached. And, and Father, I just pray, God, that you would help us to follow in that same example and to value your word for what it is worth in our lives. Father, I pray this morning that you would teach us that all of your word is profitable for us. All of your word is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus alone. And Father, I pray, God, that you would accomplish your purpose in our lives this morning. Father, we love you and we praise you and we ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a few years back, if you've got your outline, I'm, I'm, I'm reading basically from that, but a few years back, a very well-known pastor named Andy Stanley I'm not trying to speak ill of him here, so I don't want you to think that I'm just trying to bash someone, but I disagree completely with his teaching on the Old Testament. But he wrote a book that is called Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. And he claims in this book that modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. He boldly asks other pastors in his book, and I'm quoting from his book here, he says, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? Then he adds in his book later, he says, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. I struggle very much with such a well-known pastor teaching things like this. Now, in all fairness, I do understand that there are many things, Old Covenant, that no longer apply to us in the same way as they did to people in the Old Covenant. So, I do understand that basically we have things like feasts that we don't celebrate anymore. Um, we have... Um, Sabbath days and we have um, temple worship in the way that they did it there. We have animal sacrifices. We had human mediators between us and God that no longer apply. There are so many things that symbolically in the Old Covenant pointed toward what Jesus was going to do for us in reconciling us to God. So I do understand and I do commend him in his book for bringing these things out and they are important. But to come out and say that the Old Testament is a stumbling block today to people coming to faith and growing in faith, I think the Apostle Paul would disagree. Very much so. And so I want you to understand that yes, when Jesus died on the cross, He did put an end to the Old Testament law for righteousness as far as saying that if you want to be righteous with God, here's how you do it. Yes, we can accomplish that. We know that. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, the Apostle Paul actually tells us that Christ is the end of the law. What does the end mean? It's done. It's, it's over. 
Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because now we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. We are uh, uh, being saved through faith in Christ Jesus. God gives us new hearts and new minds through the Holy Spirit. He teaches us His way. He leads us and He guides us so that we no longer have a list of do's and don'ts that says as long as you do this, you will be right with God. And if you don't do this, then you are not right with God. At the end of the day, we are made right with God through Christ and Christ alone and through our faith in that. All right, But that does not mean that the Old Testament law is, still, is not still relevant for us today, especially when it's studied in light of the new covenant, which we live under today. So... Today I'm going to begin a series through Ezra and Nehemiah. And since I've spent so much time in the Old Testament lately, because it's been a while since we've been in the New Testament, I don't want to take anything away from the New Testament. Because it is equally, remember what Paul said to Timothy? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. But when he says all, he does not mean now the New Testament and no longer the Old. He means, what does all mean? There you, y'all are smart. Did y'all go to college or something? So um, I don't know if you have to go to seminary to understand that or not, but all means all. And so Paul, yes, is talking here about the Old Testament Scriptures. The New Testament is just now being written when he writes this. And our need for salvation through Christ is one of the major themes that you will see all throughout the Old Testament especially in Ezra and Nehemiah. So I want to be able to explain to you why I am spending so much time in the Old Testament. The first thing, and again, all of this comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. But the first thing, look with me again at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, and here's the point of it, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul wants Timothy and he wants us to understand that the Old Testament Scriptures show us our need for salvation through Christ alone. When you go through the Old Testament, that's what you see in every story over and over and over again is that there is no man born of Adam that is able to save us from our sin, deliver us from our sinful nature, and reconcile us to God in perfection the way that the Messiah was going to do for us. And you see this theme repeated over and over in the New Testament. And so, a little background on Ezra and Nehemiah. These are books that basically record the the narrative of the Jews returning to Israel from Babylonian captivity. You remember we just came out of a series going through Isaiah, right? And you remember in Isaiah that basically God has used Isaiah to preach to the nation of Judah and even Israel at this time, but primarily with Isaiah to Judah. Just for those of you that may not know this, during this time the kingdom of Israel has been split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom were ten tribes that 
were called Israel, and they were up in the area of Samaria. That was their capital. Then the tribes of Judah and Benjamin had went down. They were followers of, of David, and they wanted to maintain the Davidic line. And they stayed in Jerusalem where the temple was. And, and so he's prophesying to both of them, even though they're split at the time. And basically he's telling them, you have rebelled against God. You are living in sin. You are not keeping the covenant that we made between us and God. And now because of that, if you don't repent and turn back to God, I am going to send my tool, the enemy, the Assyrians and the Babylonians in to destroy your cities and to take you into captivity for discipline. And you remember when we left off in Isaiah that basically um, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had been demolished by the Assyrians and many of them had been taken off into captivity. And then by the time we leave off in Isaiah, he's warning Judah that, listen, if you don't turn around and turn back to God, you're going to be the same way as them. And so during this time, we have prophets like, um, I believe it was yeah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah who are also prophesying at the same time Isaiah is. So if you want to understand those three what we call minor prophets, then you need to read them in light of the context of he's speaking to the nations of Israel and Judah and trying to turn them back to him before he destroys them. And so when we leave off in Isaiah, basically what we see is that God is fixing to destroy them and He's going to use the Babylonians to come in and do it. The last few years before this happens, God uses the prophet Jeremiah to come in after Isaiah and Jeremiah is crying out to uh, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom again. And he's pleading with them, if you don't repent, you don't turn back. If you don't turn back to God in repentance and faith in Him, you are going to be destroyed and you are going to be carried off into Babylonian captivity. And sure enough, what happens in the book of Jeremiah? They are carried off into Babylonian captivity. And God promises them through the prophet Jeremiah that in 70 years... I'm going to come back, I'm going to visit you, and I'm going to bring you back to this land, and you are going to rebuild this land. And they are thinking that this is going to be the time that the new Davidic king comes to sit on the throne of David forever and ever, and the kingdom of God is going to be established where, as Isaiah said, the lion and the lamb do what? They lay down together. The, the child plays in the cobra's pit and so they're thinking this is the time. And so what we find in this book of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God blesses the nation of Israel in Babylonian captivity to now come back to the nation of Israel and they're going to come in three waves. First off, um, the Davidic throne, I forget what the name of the king was that went into Babylonian captivity, but his grandson is going to lead, named Zerubbabel, is going to lead the first wave of people back to Israel. His job is to rebuild the temple. And so Ezra starts out showing that God is going to fulfill His promise as Zerubbabel is leading the charge of the first wave of people from Babylon back into, um, back into the, the kingdom of God to a destroyed nation of Israel. 
And they begin the work and they lay the foundation of the temple. But then, so here's the way you see. In Ezra chapter 1 through chapter 6, it's all about God bringing the people back and the first thing they're going to do is rebuild the temple so they can get back to worshiping God. But somewhere in the middle there, they reach opposition. And so you come in with this great high of God is fixing to fulfill the promise. It's finally here. The kingdom of God is going to be built. The lion and the lamb are going to lay down together. And you see all of this um, uh, uh, charged excitement going on. And then all of a sudden some opposition comes in. And you see this charge drop down. And they stop. They build the foundation of the temple, but then the work just stops. And then God brings in... Haggai and Zechariah. I'm trying to show you the overview here so you can see how all these things tie together. So then if you want to understand Haggai and Zechariah, read through Ezra chapter 1 through 6 and where the work on the temple stops and everything grows stagnant. Then you go and read Haggai and Zechariah and those books will make sense to you. I hope you're paying attention to this because this is good stuff when you go to put it all together. And then in Ezra chapters 7 through 10, I believe is how many chapters is in Ezra. In Ezra chapter 7 through 10, we have another charge and another wave of return from Babylon that's being led by a man named Ezra. And Ezra leads the people, and this time they're not trying to rebuild the temple, but this time they're trying to rebuild the people and the covenant. And so Ezra then comes in and he is trying to reestablish the covenant with the people. And there's this great excitement that, that finally the people are going to, um, to be renewed back to God. And the relationship and the reconciliation between them and God is going to be fixed. And then the next thing you know, in the middle of it, opposition comes. And Ezra finds out that the Levites and the priests have been marrying people that serve other gods. And he goes to crying and ripping his clothes and pulling out his beard. And, 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 and so we see this climax of these good leaders that are coming in. And they're trying to bring the kingdom of God, bring the promises of God. And as hard as they try to do it, what we find out is that it just doesn't happen. Look with me at Ezra chapter 9 verse 1 through 6 just to begin with. It says, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said... Now remember, the climax was they've renewed the covenant. I mean, this is, this is a great time. The people have been made right and reconciled with God. And after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. In other words, serving other gods. All right? Now this ain't talking about interracial relationships. This is talking about relationships with people that serve gods that are not the one true God. Alright? When you got your pastors or your priests in this case that are getting married to people that serve other gods, that's a pretty big problem, right? And so here he says they've not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands." 
And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been what? Boy, that's a problem, ain't it? That's a problem. For they, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. This is what's beautiful when you go through and you read all of the books of the Old Testament. You look in at somebody like Noah. And Noah saves the human race. And we think, we're looking at it and we're thinking, man, Noah must have been the one. Noah was the seed of the woman that we've been waiting on. Look at what God did through him and look at how great he was. And then Noah gets off the boat and what does he do? <laughs> he gets drunk and causes his kid to sin. And this is the way the stories go in the Old Testament. When we look at it and we see this hero that comes out and we think, man, there he is. The, the kingdom of God is finally, sin is going to be removed and, and all of a sudden we're going to be back in fellowship with God the way that Adam and Eve was in the Garden of Eden. And then somewhere at the end of the story it says, well, Noah got drunk and caused his kid to sin. And we go, oh man. And you know what that's supposed to do for us? That's supposed to cause us to look at that and go, okay, we're still waiting on him, God. We're still waiting on him. Noah wasn't good enough. And then we see somebody like, like uh, Moses. And we look at Moses, and Moses does things like deliverers through the Red Sea and parts the Red Sea, and he brings them in, and manna comes from heaven, and water comes from a rock, and Mo no, Moses does all these great things, and the next thing you know, Moa diso Moses disobeys God. And God takes him up on the mountain and says, hey, you're not going to get to go to the promised land. And instead, Moses dies. And then before we get to the promised land, we duck our head and we go, oh man, we thought he was the one. And every time God reveals a little bit more about the Messiah, God says, listen, in the same way that Noah built an ark, the Messiah is going to build an ark too. It's going to be a little different. In the same way that, that Moses delivered the people from, from slavery, the Messiah is going to do the same thing. In the way that Moses was a prophet, the Messiah is going to come and be a prophet even greater than Moses. And then we look at David, and David comes in and he defeats Goliath. He kills our greatest enemy. And we say, oh, David must be the one. And then we look around and David's having an affair with his best friend's wife. And then he murders the guy. And then we look at it, we go, oh man, David's not the one. And then God steps in and says, yeah, but I promised to David that there's going to be a king that comes from his line. Are y'all tracking with me? Everywhere we go through the Old Testament, no matter where you go, you see this climax of this great leader of, of this is the picture of what the Messiah is going to do for you. And everybody's looking and thinking, yeah, this is it, this is it. And then by the time we get to the end of the story, we go, oh man, he wasn't the one. And what does this do for us? This makes us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ alone. In other words, we track all through the Old Testament and God says, yeah, he's going to look something like Moses, but he ain't Moses. Yeah, he's going to look something like David, but he ain't David. Yeah, he's going to look something like Ezra, but he ain't Ezra. Yeah, he's going to look something like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, but he's not, he's not any of them. And so, by the time we get to Nehemiah, and by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah in the, a lot of the older Hebrew manuscripts were just one book. And so... 
uh, the, you see what you see here is three waves of return. Um, Zerubbabel leads the first one, the grandson of the Davidic throne. Then Ezra, the scribe and the priest, comes in and leads another one. And, and then finally in Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes in and he's not rebuilding the, the temple, he's not rebuilding the people and the law. Nehemiah comes in and he's going to rebuild the protection and he's going to put the walls up. And then I want you to notice what happens. They build the walls but with opposition. And then by the time we get to Nehemiah, I want you to notice the way that Nehemiah leaves us. In Nehemiah chapter 13, this is the way it ends. Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 6 through 31. We're going to read a lot of this, so just stick with me. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had went back to Babylon for a little bit. And he says here, For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked the leave of the king. Now the walls had been built. Nehemiah had accomplished his purpose. But now he's going to come back and see how things are. Because the temple has been rebuilt, Right? The covenant and the law and the people have been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. Man, the kingdom of God ought to be, ought to be fulfilled at this time, right? But he says, I came to Jerusalem and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and notice what Nehemiah does. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So he's trying to restore it, right? He's trying to bring it back. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The church ain't got no pastors. church ain't got no teachers. The house of God is just sitting there. There's no worship of God going on. The kingdom of God ain't nothing like Jeremiah said it was going to be. So what does that tell us? Zerubbabel wasn't the one, right? Ezra wasn't the one. Nehemiah wasn't the one. As hard as they worked and as much good as they did, he's not the one. We need somebody better than those guys. They're not going to cut it. We got heart problems that they can't fix. Now notice what he says next. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shalema the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, uh, son of, son of, son of. Y'all just read it and figure it out for yourself. For they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Alright? Remember me, O God, concerning this. Nehemiah's getting a little concerned here, right? Because Nehemiah's feeling like a failure. Alright? But how many of you know that it ain't Nehemiah's job to save anybody? He says, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. Now keep going. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. What does that tell you about their covenant with God and the law? So the house of God is forsaken. This way Nehemiah leaves us, alright? You're talking about a downer. The temple that they rebuilt, forsaken. Not even a preacher in it anymore. 
the Sabbath and the covenant and the law that they rebuilt, (laughs) people just doing what they want to do. And they were bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish, all kinds of goods, sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not, our fa- did not your fathers act in this way? In other words, you're going back to Isaiah. Is this not the very thing that got us sold into slavery? Is this not the very thing that separated us from our God? And he says, And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. Nehemiah is trying to do everything possible to make people right with God, but you know what Nehemiah is learning the hard way? He can't do it. No matter how much law you put into place, y'all listen to me, everybody that wants laws for gun control and everything else. That's right, I ain't getting political from the pulpit, I'm just being honest with you. No matter how many laws you put in place, you cannot make a sinner conform to God and be reconciled with God through law. It can't happen. Nehemiah is learning this the hard way. Notice what he said. I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I even stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. So in other words, Nehemiah's doing everything he can. He's putting laws into place. But what happens? They find other ways around the law. And he says here, But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? So think about what the picture God's painting. We can rebuild a physical temple. We can build a building, but that will not make people stay true and follow God. It ain't going to do it. You can show them the Ten Commandments and you can command them to obey this and keep this because this is what happens and yet they're not going to do it. You can build walls of protection around it and they're even coming and profaning even the walls that was built. And then he says here, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, what Nehemiah say? Now this ain't the same kind of hands that the New Testament tells us to lay on the sick, okay? This is a different kind of hands. But I think most everybody in here wanted to lay hands on folks before, right? This, that's the kind of hands we're talking about right here. And so he says, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So again, we've got a little bit going here. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me. You know why he says spare me? Because Nehemiah is seeing and understands that in our sinfulness we have no hope. Guys, have you figured that out in your life yet? In my sinfulness, I have no hope. 
in and of myself. No matter what law of God I read in this book, I look at it and go, Oh me. Here I am, Lord. And so he says here, Oh God, remember me and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Let me keep going. I've got to speed this up. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. I confronted them, and notice what he does here. I love to see the the men of God trying to figure out that they can't save anybody. He says, I confronted them, I cursed them. They got the preacher cursing in church. I cursed them, I beat them, I, I pulled out their hair. I ain't went there yet with y'all, all all right? (laughs) Give me time. Give me time. Yeah, I got my sister a time or two, but hey, that's just good sibling rivalry, all right? I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women? In other words, look how even Nehemiah is using the Old Testament. He says, go back and look at the example of Solomon. Do you not see what happens when you follow this path? He says, among the many nations, there was no king like Solomon. They would have looked at Solomon and said, oh, he's the one. We've never seen a king so wise. That's the seed of David. That's the Messiah. And then they looked at Solomon and he takes all these wives and he collects all these horses and chariots and then he just slowly goes down. And we leave the end of it going, oh man, we thought this was going to be the time. We thought this was going to be the one. And he says, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Verse 27, shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada the son of Elisheb, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat. You'll learn about him and who he was. This was the, the great opposition. And the high priest has done married the, the opposition's daughter. But he says here, Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything. Nehemiah says, I I did everything I could do. I did everything I could possibly do to get them right with you, God. And he says, remember me. I cleansed them from everything far, and I established the duties of the priests, the Levites, each in his work. And then finally, and I provided for the wood offerings at appointed times and for the first fruits. And this is how Nehemiah ends. Remember me, O God, for good. What a way to end a book, right? I mean, this was supposed to be the promise. This was supposed to be the return. This was supposed to be everything that Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31. You don't have to go there, but you can write it down. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33 through 34, Jeremiah promised them that God was going to bring a new covenant, that God was going to give them new hearts, and that God was going to give them new minds. It's everything that Ezekiel had talked about in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 28. They thought this was the fulfillment, but what does the Old Testament do for you? Just one. One thing it does, 
It makes you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ alone. I can't make you right with God, people. If I curse you, if I beat you, if I pull out your hair, no matter what I do, I can't make you right with God. But there is one, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, the one that has a lot of qualities like Ezra had and like, like um, Zerubbabel had and like Nehemiah and Moses and David and all of these great giants of faith that we see. Yet He is so much better than them. Why? Because He has the power to actually cleanse us of sin. He has the power by our faith in Him to actually make us right with God Almighty. He reconciles us. He causes it to where... Nathan, can you find Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 through 34 for me? I want to show you what this says. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. That is something only God can do. You can't follow God by looking at the Ten Commandments. The only thing the Ten Commandments are going to do for you is make you look at yourself and go, Oh God, I have fallen so short of your glory. I'm not even close. Only thing it'll do is make you look at, at the way that Isaiah looked at himself and said, Woe is me, for I am undone. But then God says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Why? Because God makes a new covenant. What is that new covenant? That by the blood of Jesus Christ and your faith in it, He saves you and He adopts you and you become His. He cleanses you and He begins to give you a new heart and a new mind and He creates you into a new man. The Bible says if anyone be in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation. Old things, what do they do? Passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God does something in you through the Messiah that nobody else can do. Where do we see our need for that? Because how many of you know that you will work yourself to death trying to make yourself right with God? Will you not? How many times do you lay your head down at night going, God, what reason do you have to forgive me this time? And you think to yourself, you don't have one. And so instead of praying and receiving forgiveness and turning to Him in faith, you just lay your head down and you go right back to sleep. Why? Because you're working yourself to death trying to make yourself right with God. And you need to understand that the only way you will ever be saved and made right with God is when God washes you of your sin and when God gives you a heart that says, God, I want to be pleasing to you. God, I want to fight my sin. God, I want to learn from your Son, my Savior. And God, I want to hear from you and I want to hear from Him. And I want you to write your law on my heart. I want you to write your law on my mind. And then... When that happens, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin. When? That's the new covenant. Where do we learn that the only thing that can do this is faith in Jesus Christ? The old. The old covenant. Second reason. I could stay on that one forever. Second thing the Old Testament does for us. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse... 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. What does profitable mean? Benefits you, right? It's a good thing for you. Andy Stanley, you might want to listen to Paul. We don't need to unhitch from the Old Testament, we need to stay hitched to the Old Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament teaches us. And then what else does it do? It reproves us. It corrects us. It trains us in righteousness. I want to give you an example of it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 12. He says, Now these things took place, and he's been talking to them about the children of Israel in the wilderness the sins that they committed and how it led them to being rejected by God and many of them died in the wilderness. And he said, now these things took place as examples for who? When you read the Old Testament, the point is to look at that and see that Jesus is the only one that can make you right with God. Your faith in Him is the only thing that can save you. Moses can't do it. David can't do it. Jeremiah can't do it. No man can do it. But Jesus can do it. And then he says here, all the things that you see that they did wrong, they took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So when we go back through the Old Testament... Every time we go to Ezra and Nehemiah, what should we be looking for? Number one, we should be looking for the fact that only Jesus can make us right with God. Only faith in Him can make us right with God. But praise God, there's a new covenant that makes us right with God because the old covenant couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how good the leader was, you cannot follow law and be made right with God. The second thing that the Old Testament teaches us is that there are examples that we can look back at and see that when we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, we are to look at the things that Ezra did wrong. We are to look at the things the people did wrong. We are to look at the ways that they sinned against God and we are to learn from their examples so that We don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And then we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. So there again, you see how Paul in the church of Corinth is taking the Old Testament examples and he's teaching them, he's reproving them, he's correcting them, he's training them in righteousness. The law of God is still relevant for us today. 
Listen, just because the Bible says to us that we are no longer under the law, that don't mean that you don't still honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land. Yes, there is a symbolic part of God's law that we no longer follow. We don't have to celebrate all the feasts and keep the Sabbath day holy and we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore and we don't follow dietary laws anymore. Why? Because all of those things were symbolic and pointed toward what Jesus was going to do for you and me. We celebrate those things in Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that the moral part of God's law has changed. We still should not commit adultery. We still should not murder. We still should not steal. We still should not covet. We still should honor our mother and our father. There are moral obligations to God's law that you still are under today. What's the difference in the old covenant and the new covenant? Now God is teaching you and He's writing these things on your heart as you follow Jesus by faith. And when you go back and you look at the Old Testament, you get teaching you get teaching that shows us exactly what we shouldn't do, exactly what we should do. Whenever we go back, we get reproved. That word reproved means to stop us from continuing in a wrong course of action. See, that's a problem for many Christians today. We think we come up here and pray a prayer and then we don't ever have to do anything anymore. All I got to do is just keep living the way I want to live and doing what I want to do and rising up, eating and drinking and playing. And then when Jesus comes back, I'll just go home with Him. No, you need to be reproved. And how are you going to get that? Go back and look at the Old Testament and look what happened when they rose up to eat and drink and play instead of following God by faith, instead of trusting Him for salvation instead of loving Him and believing Him and following Him to the promised land. What happened to those guys? Did they just walk into the promised land? No. And Hebrews tells us they did it because of their unbelief. They didn't believe God. They didn't have genuine faith. They didn't trust Him all the way to the end. That's the difference in somebody that is saved and somebody that's not. True, genuine faith perseveres to the end. Does he still falter and fall? Well, look at Noah. (laughs) Look at David. Look at Moses. Go back and look at all your examples. What I just read to you in Nehemiah. You think God was pleased with them whipping and beating and pulling hair out and throwing furniture out? No, we still falter and fail along the way. But the difference in somebody that believes God and trust God is they're persevering to the end. They get back up. They get back on track. And even though they sin, they confess their sin. And they trust and they believe that God is faithful and He is just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And they stay on the path. The Old Testament reproves us. It, it, it corrects us. Notice the reproving was stopping us from continuing 
in a wrong course of action. Correction is getting us back on the right course of action. You should never come to church and hear me preach and leave out of here going, I'm just so terrible of a sinner. Now, is there a part of God's message that you're probably going to feel that way? That's right. But there ought to also be correction so that when you leave, you go, okay, I am such a failure in this area for the glory of God. But one thing about it, He forgives me. He loves me. And this is the way that He would teach me to go. We ought to be reproved from the examples of the old and we ought to be corrected from the examples of the old. And then finally, the last thing he says here, when that happens, the positive thing is that in um, 2 Timothy 3, the end of verse 16, that we get trained in righteousness. We get trained in righteousness. If indeed you are a child of God, it is because you have been shown your sin and where you stand with God. You have been shown what He has done for you to save you and reconcile you back to Him. You have rejoiced in that, believed in that, and trusted in that, and praised Him for that. And now He has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ to follow Him by faith. And if that has happened, then God is doing a sanctifying work in you. Sanctification is just a big word that means that God is making you holy more and more every day. God is making you more and more like Him the more that you follow Him, the more you believe Him, the more you trust Him you are being changed from darkness into light. I don't know about you, but I thank God that I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. How can I say that? Because I trust Jesus. I follow Jesus. I am learning from His Word. I am being taught. I am being reproved. I am being corrected. And I am being trained in righteousness. So that one day, one day, now this is going to sound um, blasphemous, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. So that one day, I want to be so close to Him that it's no big change on that day when Jesus calls my name. Little by little, He has brought me to be more and more like Him. How do we get that according to the Apostle Paul? By trusting in and by studying and by continuing in what we're being taught from the sacred Scriptures, which for Paul and for Timothy was not the New Testament you have today. It was what? The Old Testament. And so next week, my plan, if the Lord wills, is to begin in Ezra chapter 1. And my plan is to look, and I want, here's the goal all the way through these books. God, I want you to make me wise for salvation through faith in Christ alone. Alone. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then, God, I want you to teach me from their examples, both good and bad. God, I want you to reprove me 
from what I see them do and the examples that they give. God, I want to see You correct me. I want to be brought back onto the right course of action. And God, I want You to use Your Scriptures to train me in righteousness so that I get so close to You that it's no big change on the day when You call my name. And that's the goal for the Old Testament.